And then for scripture reading today, uh, there are two passages that I'll read from. First one from John 11 and the second from Acts 6. So from John 11 would be verses 38 through 44. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that, it will, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And then from Acts 6, Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the truth. Is it? Can I say sitting to preach right there? <laughs> this is my first time using this. I feel so bougie, and about 10 of you understood what that word was. <sighs> okay. Let me get organized here. It's good to have you all here on Communion Sunday that we can all be here together and Y'all came to hear me preach. So excited. But I need to ask everybody, it's a very, very serious question. And I need audience participation. Do you like sandwiches? Yeah, hands. Do you like sandwiches? What do you put in a sandwich? What goes into a sandwich? And shout outs, please. What goes into a sandwich? What do you put in your sandwich? Mayonnaise, meat, cheese, lettuce, vegetables. Willie, don't spoil it. You're getting ahead. 
Did someone say peanut butter? I guess that works. Yeah, that is a sandwich, PB&J. I'm an Italian guy. I like Italian subs, sub sandwiches, right? I like, that's by far my favorite, right? You need all that stuff inside. That's what gives it the flavor, the variety, right? Your meat, your vegetables, your condiments, your cheese. It's all good. It's all part of the sandwich. But a sandwich is not a sandwich without the bread, right? It's not a sandwich. And if the bread's not good or it's not there, you're going to know it. Now, I hope you're all hungry because we do have Love Feast later, and that was sponsored by all the people who prepared Love Feast. Eat your fill. We don't want leftovers. Anyways, so as Doug mentioned, this is the start of a series focused on prayer. And what do sandwiches have to do with prayer? We pray before we eat the sandwiches. Well, when we look in Jesus' ministry in the Bible, we see all the miracles, the healings, the teachings, all of that stuff, and it's all good. They're all miracles. They're all an important part of Jesus' ministry. And they're what catch your eye. It's what you notice the most. But it's not complete, right? If it's just the miracles, it's not the entirety of Jesus' ministry. He also prays, and he prays a lot. He prays before he does the miracles. He prays after he does the miracles. He prays before he eats, after he eats, before he sleeps, when he wakes up, right? That is a part of his ministry. And often I think we see that you see the miracles and you see the healings, and like, that's the ministry, and, like, and then he prays on the side. That's not the case. He prays, and everything else fits in the middle. Jesus lived a prayerful life life. He was focused on prayer, and prayer was important to him. You see, prayer is what connected Jesus to God. It's his lifeline. It's his connection. And he needed to have that. Even though Jesus was God, he still seeks and needs a relationship to keep himself going. He needs God in his life. And that's point number one. We have to structure our lives so that prayer outlines everything. Prayer needs to be the bread in our sandwich. It's what keeps everything together. Prayer is our lifeline to God. That's point number one. Prayer is our lifeline to God. I didn't even make you work for it. I gave it to you right off the bat. So that's an easy one. But don't worry, there's still two more points. And those will come later. As we, after we've read for a bit. But they're all important. We're going to work with four different passages here. I had Doug read two because I was caring for Doug's voice. I didn't want him to lose it from reading everything. Two of them have to do with Jesus. And two of them have to do with the early church, as you noticed from what Doug read. And as we work through them, I hope that the other two points coming start to become apparent. So actually, what we're going to start with is Luke 9, 10 to 17. That's the scripture we're going to start with. 
Luke 9, 10 to 17 is a story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. There's also another point where Jesus feeds the 4,000. He does it twice. In the feeding of the 5,000, what I don't think it's always portrayed is that when Jesus fed the 5,000, this was, it was important that he did this, right? He fed 5,000 people. That's important. But it's even more important than maybe it always appears. You see, Jesus and his disciples before this decided to stay in a town called Bethsaida, which is a small fishing village located on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. So Galilee is basically a circle lake, right? And then you have... Bethsaida up here. And it's all alone. No other major cities are near it. It's very remote. And the village likely only had a couple of hundred residents, probably 200 to 300. Very small, very remote, right? Nowhere near anywhere else. Despite the fact that Jesus was in this remote location, it did not matter. People still followed him. And they went there intentionally to get away, but people came anyways. So when we get to our part here, right, when we're looking at the scripture, it's likely that this is all taking place down on the shore. They've moved out of the city because the city is small. Again, it only fits a couple hundred people, and there's thousands there. So let me read a little bit here so that we can get caught up. When Jesus had called the 12, wait, my fault, wrong part. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned about it and followed him, he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Disciples did so, and everyone sat down. So right, context of the story. The day has gone. We've gotten to the point where the sun is getting lower in the sky. We're getting towards sunset. And Jesus says, all day been teaching about the kingdom of God and healing everyone who's come to him. And so the disciples come to him and are like, these people need shelter. They need food. They need their daily necessities. Now remember, they're in a remote location. And even though it is custom in Jewish tradition that you provide shelter for those traveling outside, so you travel to a different town, you provide shelter to those people. There's only enough for a couple hundred. So what? Say you can double that. That's what? 500, 600. We said 5,000 men were there. On top of that, again, remember, it's remote. 
right? They can't really travel to any other major cities. And here's the thing about that 5,000 5, number, right? It says there's 5,000 men there. And if you notice later in the text, it talks about there was also women and children there. So that 5,000 very easily could have been 10,000. We don't know. The number's not given. The number is up there, right? Far more than anything that can be hosted by these people. The 5,000 alone is 25 times the number that the town can hold. So you're talking undoable. They can't feed them all, let alone house them all. And so when the disciples trying to be caring for everyone come to Jesus, they're like, we need to care for these people. And this, this is kind of how I imagine it going, right? I'm a disciple. Jesus, Jesus, they need to go home. They need food. They need shelter, right? They need these things. And you've been talking all day. We can, we could do with a break. What'd you say? You want me to feed them. He said he wants us to feed them. With what? We have two fish, five loaves. I know Peter can eat all that in one sitting, God. How are we, how are we supposed to do that? We could go maybe buy them something. We're not exactly rich. We don't make a lot of money. You, you don't care? You want them to sit in groups anyways? Oh, okay. All right, guys, let's, let's get them sitting in these places. Right? It seems ridiculous. Why are you having them sit all in one place? How can we feed them all on our own? In human power, we cannot. We cannot make that happen. But Jesus doesn't care. And he has them sit them into groups anyways. Now this next part is important. Right? We're on 16 to 17. Taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven... He gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Did you catch that? Did you see what Jesus did there? I know he did the miracle, but that's not what I'm talking about, right? He made food made for maybe three people max feed over 5,000, probably 10,000. That's the miracle. But did you catch what he did? I don't think he did. I don't think you caught it. Maybe we need to look at something else. Look at another passage. John eleven thirty-eight to 44. The raising of Lazarus. Now, you know, I like my context. I like to put the stories where they need to be. Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha. And we meet, we've met them before. This is the same Mary that goes to Jesus and cries on his feet, wipes his feet with her hair, puts perfume on his feet, right? Humbles herself before him. So Jesus knows them. He knows Mary, he knows Martha, he knows Lazarus. And he says that they are beloved. He cares for them deeply. 
So at this point, right, Jesus earlier was in Bethsaida. He's now in Jerusalem. He's moved his ministry into Jerusalem. And he's now teaching and healing other people there. Lazarus is died and buried in the town of Bethel. Now Bethel is very close to Jerusalem. It's only a couple of miles, easy walk, even today. Today, it's an easy trip over. You can barely tell the difference between the two. They're almost connected, which now it's more connected because cities have grown, right? But the point is it's close. Very, very close. So when Jesus gets the news, instead of going right away, he waits. He waits two full days before he and the disciples decide to go to Bethel. When they arrive, they interact with Mary and Martha and others until finally Jesus asks them to take him to the tomb. Now, what I'm talking about happens in the scripture leading up to our passage there. So if you wanted to look at that, that way you know. And this leads us to what Doug read for us. So now, we go to the tomb. And Lazarus is already in the tomb. And tombs those days were caves that were found in the side. They might have worked on them a bit, right? Made them a little better, but they were caves. And they would put stones in front. And how it would work was you would take the person, you would lay them in the middle on some sort of stone table, and they would stay there for about a year while they would decompose. And then they would move them into a side chamber, what was left, to make room for the next person to come in. And how it was understood, it took about three days for bodies to start smelling, right? To, for the decomposition to start. And how they understood it was that after three days' time, your spirit had left. It had moved on, right? And that's why the body starts to smell, because that person is dead. They are completely dead. No surprises, no waking up. After your three days' time, there's no coming back. And Lazarus has been dead for four. So he is in that process. He is moved on as it would be understood. So when Jesus comes, right, he says, remove the stone. And rightly so, there's pushback. Martha says, uh, it's going to smell like we can't, we can't do that. We, this is bad for us. It's bad for Lazarus, right? Because the dead are unclean. You don't mix the living and the dead, is how it was, right? And it does not do Lazarus service to see him like that, and it does not do anybody else there a service, right? So you leave them. You do not do that. But Jesus tells them, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And then... Jesus does this. I'll reread from 40. Then Jesus, oh, 41, my fault. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. 
What did Jesus do? This is the second passage with Jesus. What did he do? He did two miracles. And he did the same thing for each one, even though the miracles were different. Before he does a miracle, he prays to God. A little more profound in this one, there's actually what he says, but in the one before, in the 5,000, he prays as well. But the point is not that Jesus prayed, right? We, I talked about earlier, Jesus lived a life of prayer, right? He was always constantly in prayer, having his relationship with God. That was not something that should be a surprise. What is a surprise and what's important here is that Jesus didn't make it about himself. Not one bit of it. When he prayed to God, he prayed that God would work through him. And he gave all the glory to God. He said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. It's not about him. Even though Jesus is God, he is God in a bod, as I like to say with the youth group. But it's not about him. He prayed that God's will will be done so that others would believe, so that the kingdom of God would grow. When we pray, we should not be praying for our own gains, not so that we might become famous or that we might succeed over others. When we pray, we should pray, we should be praying, excuse me, that God could work through us so that the kingdom of God will grow. In all our prayers, the focus should be like this. Lord, guide my hand so that I can do your work. Lord, give me the strength that I may be able to walk and show others the kingdom of God. Right? It's not about you. Our prayers should be God-focused and not us-focused. Right? Our prayers should be God-focused and not us-focused. I know saying that, it's not that simple, right? How do we do that? How do we make sure that our prayers are God-focused and not us-focused, right? It's easy to be self-centered, to pray for yourself. I'm, I'm guilty. I know I've done it, right? Praying that God would just help me do this or help me do that. It's hard on our own. We're easily swayed by our selfish ways. It's hard not to make, not make it about us. It's hard to be selfish, selfless like Jesus was. There's a reason that Jesus was the perfect and is the perfect example to follow. Because he was God. So how do we do that, people who are not God, right? Just regular humans. Well, thankfully, we're not the only ones that have gone through this, right? We are not alone. The early church kind of gives us a guideline of how to work towards that. Acts 2, 1 to 4. So this is the other passage that I didn't have Doug read. But it connects with the passage that I had Doug read. Right, 
So context for this, right? At this point in time, the disciples have seen Jesus ascend to heaven. Jesus has come, he's rose from the grave, he's ascended back to heaven. And they've chosen a disciple to replace Judas at this time. So they are back to 12. And they are in the early stages of founding the church. But nothing has really happened yet. They're still just kind of there. No real excitement, like no big conversion stories. The church is just at ground level, ground zero. But I say nothing, but it's not really nothing. They are doing something. They're preparing. They're communing together, praying together, supporting one another. They're holding to their Jewish customs, right? You see, at this point, at this passage, which I'll get to reading in a few seconds here, right? They're celebrating Pentecost, also known as the Festival of Weeks, which this is the celebration of the first harvested crop, which is a joy celebration, right? You get to have food for the year. It's a celebration of new life, of a new beginning. Now let's let the text speak for itself. Starting in 2.1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And we know what happens after. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they go out, and they start speaking to the masses, right? Pentecost is one of the few holidays where everybody in the Jewish world travels to Jerusalem. They join together, or at least attempt to, right? So there are thousands on thousands out in Jerusalem. And so they go, and they speak to them, and they convert up to 3,000 on the first day. They are inspired. They cannot do this alone. This is clearly a work of the Holy Spirit. But what were the disciples doing to receive it? What were they doing before that? Well, if you look in the scriptures ahead, you know, and as I said, that they were praying. They were communing together. They were praying that God would come to them. And they were waiting because Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem because I will, God will send his gift to you. Let's fast forward now to the passage that Doug read for us, 6, 1 to 7. So now we're fast forwarding here. I don't know the timeline. It doesn't necessarily say. But the church has grown, right? This is post the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on them. And many have added to their number in Jerusalem. So much so that they are struggling to care for everyone in the church evenly. An issue is brought forward. That there is not fair treatment for all members in the church. Greek Jews were complaining that Hebrew Jews were not caring for their widows. Slightly complex, I know. Basically, different cultures are butting heads in the church, right? From different 
upbringings. And it might be true that they were not being cared for evenly, right? But we don't necessarily know. What's important is, is that not everybody was being cared for, not evenly. And this is a serious issue for the church. Not taken care of, this could split the church in two, right? We have to care for everyone. That's what Jesus did. He cared for everyone. So the disciples, now apostles, gathered together. They recognized that this is an issue. Everyone needs to be taken care of fairly in the church. But they also recognized the importance of being able to lead and pray and be ministering the word of God. Now there's a point here where they say, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, no, not that one. Pardon me, I'm lost. Here it is. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, at first, I think that sounds harsh, right? It seems that they're like, oh, this is beneath us. I don't think that's what they're saying. It's not about it being beneath them, but they recognize the importance, right, of leading the church, of being in prayer, of being able in connection with God. And they recognize they cannot do two things at once. They cannot lead the church and be the prayer ministry for them and also be doing all the day-to-day work of feeding everyone. It's too much. A person cannot be in two places at once. So they come to a compromise. They say, let us pick people to deal with this, right? Pick people who are God-fearing, not just anyone, people who care for the church, who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they pick those men to lead it. And when they chose those men, they come forward and they pray over them together. And once again, you see that the church explodes after this. It says people join their number. Even priests come and join their number because they believe. And I believe that the church explodes for two reasons. The first being they made effort to care for everyone and live as Jesus did. And two, because even though it could have been easy for the apostles to take matters into their own hands and deal with, try to deal with everything all at once, they recognized that they had limits, and that maintaining a constant relationship to God through prayer was a necessity. They could not go without it. The church could not go without it. Not at the early stage, not ever. Now, I might be picking at fibers here, and there might not be anything at all. But what I've seen in these last two texts dealing with the early church is an entire group coming together, focusing on prayer and a relationship with God, not so that they would benefit, but that God could use them as instruments to proclaim the gospel. When we pray together, we keep ourselves accountable to God. When we pray together, we keep ourselves accountable to God. When we pray with others, we can much more easily ensure that what we are focused on is in line with what God wants, with what God is calling us to do, that we are not being self-centered, self-focused, right? 
So how do we turn this information to us? How do we take it from where it was, from the Bible to now? Well, let's recount. What are the points that we've come across? The first is that prayer is our lifeline to God. That's a requirement, right? We have to have prayer in our lives to have a relationship with God. The second, our prayers need to be God-focused and not us-focused. What we pray for has to be to benefit the kingdom of God, to something that God wants us to do, not so that we will gain something from it. And third, when we pray together, we keep ourselves accountable to God. We are not Jesus. We are not, we might have the Holy Spirit in us, but we are not perfect. We make mistakes. We become selfish, right? When we have other people in the church praying together with us, we keep ourselves accountable. We make sure that what we are praying for is God-focused. So right now, we are going through a transition in the church. Call it revitalization. And in that transition, we desperately need a relationship with God to guide us as we move forward. We have to. When we look at Jesus, he did nothing without prayer. Absolutely nothing. He didn't do any miracles. He didn't go and make decisions without speaking to God first. When he's about to go on the cross, he's praying in Gethsemane that God would give him the strength or God would be there with him, right? He's always praying with God. That's a priority. And when we look at the early church and the apostles who were leading them, the ones that were closest to Jesus, they chose to do nothing without praying to God. Every decision they made was about praying to God. They did nothing without God's support, without his guidance. And when they did, they exploded, they expanded, right? Those explosions where people came, that was only because the Holy Spirit did it, not because one man did it. It takes everyone praying together, actively seeking a relationship with God to guarantee that we are following the will of the Holy Spirit. And I'll invite the the worship team forward now. We have a prayer team in this church that we have brought in to pray as we're going through this process, right? Because we need prayer. We have to have it. But they cannot do it alone. Prayer is not for just two people to pray for everyone else. It is everyone together. It's a group function. Everyone has to be bought in. Everyone has to be praying together. As we move forward here through this series focused on prayer, through the weeks coming, through the months, through the years, let's make prayer a priority in our lives. We have to have prayer if we want to have an effective ministry. A sandwich without bread is not a sandwich. And in the same way, a ministry without prayer surrounding it is not a ministry. Let's make praying together a priority in our lives.